Hello everyone, I'm Wael Talib, a journalist at Lorient today and the co-host of the Beirut Banya now. And my name is David Wood. I'm the senior Lebanon analyst for International Crisis Group, a conflict prevention organization. I've been living in Beirut for five years and I think for three of them I've known the handsome Wael Talib. This is not true, not the handsome part, not the three years part. Okay, so which part's more true, the handsome or the three years? <laughs> I <don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, say two years. No, it's even less, man. Oh, my word. Yeah, yeah. Time flies when you're having yeah. fun, right? But we know each other professionally, but also now, because we've uh, talked a lot about politics a lot of times now, we get along uh, better days. Absolutely. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, the handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatar, and this is The Beirut Banyan. This pattern of escalation that we've been talking about for you know, several weeks now, which is that there are several different potential explanations for why Israel's doing what it's doing. I think one that is quite persuasive is that, as we know in Lebanon, uh, Hezbollah has developed a pattern of uh, retaliating for every escalation by Israel, but minus a certain margin. Yep. So is to avoid uh, a massive spiral of escalation. So retaliating, but uh, not at the same level as what Israel has done. So one potential explanation for these kinds of targeted strikes is that Israel sees this as an opportunity to take out Hezbollah-aligned infrastructure, and that could help to explain the attack in Battenberg. Another thing that occurred to me yesterday is that obviously most of Israel's strikes have been concentrated in the south of Lebanon, but we all remember the strike in Dahia, um, which resulted in the assassination of Salah al Um And then the third major area that was targeted by Israeli strikes in the 2006 war, the last major conflict between the parties, was in the Bekaa Valley. I mean, if you look at uh, a map of where the missile strikes were concentrated in 2006, the third of the top three areas is, is Baalbek and, and, and in the Bekaa Valley. So perhaps this is... Um, also an effort by Israel to apply pressure on the ongoing uh, discussions or what could turn into negotiations about changing the security situation at the border. Who knows? It could be a combination of all those things. Why would Hezbollah escalate things and uh, shoot uh, $2 million uh, drone? You were talking about them retaliating and uh, like a less of an intensity than Israel. Mm. So why would they escalate things in, in this sense? I mean, I think that at some point, uh, as I said, uh, Hezbollah has taken this very calibrated approach to responding. But equally, as we know, there's, there's this idea of mutual deterrence, right? And, and I think we've all heard a lot about this, um, especially since the 7th of October. And this idea that Hezbollah and Israel feel that they need to prove to the other side that they're willing to go all the way. Uh, and therefore... Uh, it's kind of like poker, a game that I'm terrible at, so I'll, I'll mangle this analogy and you can help me with it. I should, it. But, play that, that I should learn, yeah. 
he'll definitely take my money off me because I don't actually have any strategy when it comes to poker. But I try to win psychologically by, by using a bluff, which is where even if I don't have good cards, I might be able to beat you without actually using my cards yeah. if I can convince you I have strong cards. Mutual deterrence, to my mind, operates something like that. It's that you, you, it's 80% psychological. Each side wants the other to believe that it is um, a threatening enough military power and is willing to act on that power so that the costs of um, and all that escalation outweigh any potential benefits. So for this reason, while Hezbollah has been uh, very committed and disciplined in these calibrated responses, perhaps one way to explain uh, the attack on this drone was to remind Israel that it does have um, better capacity in terms of air defence than it did um, when the parties last had a major conflict in 2006. That's one explanation. Would you agree that Hezbollah has been tested enough times that it won't start a full CSK war? Not, not impossible, but the way it appears. I think that they've, there's been a clear pattern established, right, which is that Hezbollah has resisted calls from Hamas in the early days of the conflict to intervene more forcefully. Hezbollah has resisted uh, sustained attacks on its own uh, fighters, on communities where many of its supporters live, and has remained committed to this policy of matching Israel minus X, but also of not pausing until there's a, an end to Israeli aggression in Gaza. And I, I still believe that despite uh, yesterday's events, that, that that seems to be the course that the party has set for itself and that it's most likely to continue. So then Israel can, in theory, get away with everything it does in Lebanon. Like, not, not everything, but in a lot of things. And that's why it's testing the water slowly. Like, for, uh, for example, there was the Sar Haruli assassination. Mm -hmm. Hezbollah did not, Mohammed pointed out uh, in my interview with him that Nasrallah at some point had said that uh, if they strike Rahi, Tel Aviv would be stuck. And yep. that didn't happen. And then Saida, not Saida, sorry, around Saida, Jadra was struck, mm -hmm. uh, which is like, uh, Jadra is in uh, Mount Lebanon, by the way, like it's, yep. uh, it's not even on the south, mm -hmm. it's close to Saida. And then uh, Ghazi was struck, which is very deep uh, as well, in, yep. the, in the south. And now the Baalbaq strikes, like, is the, are the Israelis, like, what's the, are the Israelis testing the water slowly because they know that they can get away with uh, a lot of things? If we look at something like these uh, strikes that are happening in or close to civilian areas and why Israel is doing them, then sure, I think that one plausible explanation is that, as I mentioned earlier, I believe, like that, that there's an opportunistic element to this that would be uh, persuasive. So if there are, if Israel were to have military targets related to Hezbollah, then now would seem to be the time to to attack them. I mean, if this was done uh, on the 6th of October 2023, when the old rules of engagement or rules of the game between the parties were in place, it would seem much riskier than when Hezbollah has demonstrated this pattern over several months of calibrated retaliation rather than taking a further step up the, the escalation ladder, if you will. So I think that that's uh, one plausible explanation. For sure, yeah. And uh, like before, even before the Ghazi uh, strike and the Jadra strike, mm. things were escalating slowly, you know, in terms of uh, like uh, targeted assassinations, the severity of the attacks. We see a massive destruction in the south uh, mm. now, as opposed like there was destruction in the beginning, but mm. uh, like the. As far as I remember, at the beginning, the outskirts of the village used to be bombed. 
Then it got mm. closer to like uh, actual villages, mm. and now we see total like who knows how much destruction there is. There's not uh, good numbers on that, but sure. there's there's total destruction to some villages. Mm. So, like it's it's uh, not uh, it's not a full scale war yet, but it's been on the, the escalating. Yeah, slowly, but it's been escalating. So mm. yeah, and it's it's notable, right, that Hezbollah has not uh, inflicted. Anywhere near the near the same amount of damage on Israeli civilians or Israeli civilian areas, right? Um, also, do, the, do you think? Do you think, like genuinely, do you think that when Hezbollah uh, inflicts casualties, mm. do you think they do that oftentimes by mistake, like a civilian casualty? Yes, yeah. uh, possibly. But I mean, I I couldn't I couldn't read the minds of yeah. Hezbollah's leadership on this front. But what what I do know is that there are fewer civilian targets for Hezbollah to hit simply because the, the entire kind of border strip um, to a certain number of kilometres inside northern Israel has been evacuated. So, I mean, we know that Hezbollah has the firepower to hit major civilian areas if it wants to. That's a clear choice not to do that. But uh, many of these strikes that we've seen in retaliation for Israeli attacks in southern Lebanon have fallen in areas that have been um, evacuated by civilians. If you remember, I think it was about a month ago, that a mother and her son, who were civilians, not, not military personnel, uh, died uh, from a, an anti-tank missile attack, attack I believe, that yep. originated from yeah, yeah. Lebanon. And, and in fact, as I understand it, what had happened is that the mother and son had refused to evacuate. They weren't meant to be there is the point. Yeah. They, they were just there because they, they said, no, we want to keep living in our, our home for whatever reason. So... So in that case, it's reasonable to believe that Hezbollah had no idea that these people would be there. Yeah. Because obviously, as we know, like, I mean, Nasrallah mentioned or at least floated the idea in his first speech after this round of conflict broke out that there might be a principle of Hezbollah taking a civilian life for every uh, civilian that died in Lebanon from an Israeli attack. Yeah, now, obviously, yes. Yeah, I mean, that, that hasn't happened. Yeah. Now, and, and I think that that's not just because of this reason that I mentioned, which is that not so many uh, Israeli, there are barely any Israeli civilians near the border. I think that you're right. Like part of this is a calculated strategy by Hezbollah, again, to make sure that there is a retaliation, but it's not likely, if at all likely, to push the situation into an uncontrollable spiral of escalation. I'm uh, not right here because I'm not advocating any opinion. I'm playing the sure. devil's advocate. Absolutely, you know? as yeah. you always do. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the uh, last point about the Baalbaq strike. We can both agree that the reason they struck the Baalbaq is not a military purpose, as in there was no very valuable target in Baalbaq mm. that they couldn't avoid striking, and that's why they struck Baalbaq. There's plenty of targets in the south to strike, but they chose to strike Baalbaq area, right, mm. as, a, as a political message to Hezbollah. Well, that's certainly not what they claimed officially, right? Like, their official yeah, claim was well, that it was related to the air defense system. Yeah, that's what just, they said, yeah, but... Worth mentioning. Yeah. Uh, for sure. I mean, as I said, I think it builds pressure, uh, or it's intended to build pressure on Hezbollah to negotiate... And also, I have no idea whether the strike was intended to hit this um, food depot, but if it's connected to El Sajjad, like something, something like that, which goes to the social welfare um, support aspect of Hezbollah, yeah. it's something that's very important to, to its supporters, you know, not, and not just during the economic crisis. So I think that um, the strike in Baalberg, as you are kind of suggesting, I think, is probably symbolic. 
Um, but but there is a symbolism to it, which is probably intended at least to apply military pressure to negotiations in much the same way, by the way, as Israel seems to be doing in relation to Gaza, sure. is using force to influence negotiations, in this case at the minute, over uh, hostage release deal. Something we were discussing earlier is that uh, before, like not before, uh, compared to th- 2006, the most, yeah, all of Lebanon was targeted, like uh, across mm. Lebanon, uh, there were targets, yes, but it was mostly focused on the south, yep. Tabika, yep. and Dahi. Mm. And now there is not consistent strikes on these areas, mm-hmm. but the status quo is getting close, like very slowly, of course, but getting sl- closer to these other areas that are uh, always uh, like uh, risky, at risk. Mm-hmm. So the status quo is not very different than 2006. It's not a full-scale wall, and Beirut is maybe isolated, but these areas, I think uh, the residents, yeah, uh, the status quo is not very different to uh, 2006. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think? Uh, I, I think it, it would be hard to argue that the current strikes are, are like are clearly the 2006 war was more intense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, like I was there, here the whole time. I'm mm. saying it's, it's slowly, like without us noticing, mm. because it's a slow uh, escalation, it's slowly getting there. Like uh, with enough time, God knows how much time it will, uh, mm. this uh, war will take. With uh, enough time, it might reach that level without uh, us noticing that it reached uh, that level, without a full-blown escalation that would happen suddenly. It's kind of like the frog in boiling water analogy. Like, okay. Um, What's worth considering here is that it seems unlikely to me um, that Israel would want to open two fronts at once, like fully open two fronts. So we know that there are negotiations that are ongoing for some kind of temporary ceasefire. Would or wouldn't, you said? Wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, but I think that would make sense. Like, it, it's never a good idea to have, have two fronts open for any belligerent, right? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, like, that's not even specific to the situation. Yeah, tactic, from a military perspective. And then you, you read these reports which suggest that, quite simply, Israel doesn't have the capabilities on its northern border right now to to launch like a, a ground invasion of southern Lebanon or something like that. So I think that while the hostilities remain at like a high level in, in Gaza, it's less likely um, that there would be a full-scale war initiated by Israel um, uh, along the Lebanese-Israeli border. The question, of course, then becomes what happens if there is a temporary ceasefire in Gaza because, yeah. you know, there's there's already Israeli leaders who are saying that uh, when this happens, the next step for Israel is to move to the north. Yeah. Um, Israel made very public and in a very non-subtle way that reservists who've recently been released from Gaza were told to be ready for active service in the north from April. So, again, this doesn't necessarily mean that Israel is planning to invade uh, Lebanon in the next few weeks. It could be a pressure tactic. I think this comes back to mutual deterrence, this idea that you need... Like, each side needs the other to believe that it's prepared to go all out, and that is the deterrent factor. Um, so I'm not, I'm not predicting a, a war in Lebanon, but I'm also saying it can't be discounted. What I do think is it's very unlikely so long as the hostilities consider, continue at a relatively high level in Gaza, just for practical reasons. Yeah, as you said, like, the Israeli statements were, like, uh, increasing in terms of intensity. And then uh, we would say that, oh, but they've been stating this, uh, making these statements since the beginning of the war. Mm. But then they stuck Baalbek. Like, they actually sure. kind of met their, state, uh, their statements. Not completely, but like, 
when they make crazy statements, such as, uh, not crazy, like statements such as we will strike, uh, did they say Kaslik and uh, whatever? Sure. Yeah. Uh, should we take it? Should we take, like, of course, we will take it and, uh, seriously, but should we, how, how serious are these statements? I, I think that the strike in Baalbek is serious, as any, as any military strike is in this battle, and it's entering into literally new territory. It's the deepest strike in terms of, of distance. Um, that, that has happened since the, the latest round of conflict broke out. So for all those reasons, it, it should be taken seriously. I also think that just given the pattern that's been established, it, it doesn't necessarily reflect an intention of Israel to start like a phased escalation into an all-out war. Look, as, as I understand it from the outside, the, the thing is and, and what makes you know the job for my job and, and also yours as a journalist difficult in, in answering this question is, it's clear even to outsiders like us that, that the Israelis, the Israeli leadership is hopelessly divided. Um, people have suffered this incredible like psychological trauma after the, the 7th of October. And for those reasons, it's very unclear exactly what is going to happen. What, what I understand from, from, from my colleague, who uh, is an excellent uh, researcher who works on Israel, Meir Avzonzin, uh, is that there has, there is a, some of the Israeli political and military leadership has been saying for years that something needs to be done about Hezbollah, something serious, some kind of military solution, uh, and that now is, is a better time than any to do it. There is that argument out there. Also, you know, the viewers might remember, and I'm, I'm sure you do, that on, I think it was on the 11th of October, there was this meeting that was held by the Israeli war cabinet where there was a debate about whether to preemptively strike Lebanon. And it's unclear who it was at this meeting who talked Netanyahu and, and whoever was supporting him in this idea out of it. Some say it was Biden himself. Others say it was someone like yeah, the Eisenkart. Someone in the, but the point is that there were voices in the room in the war cabinet saying this is a strategic error. Don't do it. What that makes me believe, again, as someone who's an outsider to all this, is that there are still uh, leaders in Israel who realise that it would be madness in a military sense, like absolute madness to enter into full-scale war with Hezbollah. Why? Because of the consequences. Yeah, and in what sense? That because because it's, been tried, it's been tried several times before by Israel in the past few decades and it never works. In 1978, um, tr chasing the PLO up to the Litani and occupying southern Lebanon up to the Litani. In 1982, going all the way to Beirut, trying to install a friendly government. That failed. Uh, during the 1990s, trying to create a kind of security buffer zone through occupation with the assistance of, the, of a proxy uh, military force didn't work, left in 2000, withdrew. 2006, similar kind of aim to what is um, apparently being done now in relation to Hamas, which is to eliminate the threat of Hezbollah, didn't work. So my point is that, I mean, even if, like, if you look at it in terms of what Israel's military objectives are, they, I, I just don't see a military solution to them, certainly not in terms of a full-scale war. And I would say this because I work for a conflict prevention organisation, but the smartest way out of this and the best way for both sides, really, is to, is to negotiate and find some kind of political settlement. Look, I would agree with you that the military action did not, uh, was not effective in most of these wars. When it comes to the PLO, though, to be fair, they did kick the PLO out of Lebanon. So they but, and, and, they, and they went to Tunis. Yeah, 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 but they kicked them out of Lebanon. But what, what sure, was, sure. what, what the defeat about this, uh, this occupation, 
is that they decided to stay in Lebanon mm. and they were forced out of Lebanon. Yeah, mm. that, uh, that didn't work. But the PLO, but the difference, what I'm saying is the difference between the PLO and Hezbollah mm. is the Hezbollah are the residents of these villages. How can you kick the residents of these villages out? The PLO, however, were a foreign entity, mm. mostly hated by uh, Lebanese, uh, act, uh, Lebanese uh, residents like we all remember that. Mm. This is uh, maybe people, uh, it's an unfortunate thing and it's not a nice thing to say. But when Israel occupied Lebanon in uh, 1982, mm. uh, the south at first, people, the, the residents of the th- uh, south, some of them threw rice uh, on the on the Israelis, some of them, in celebration of it, because they were so fed up by the PLO. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it's different. Uh, what I'm saying is it's different between Hezbollah and the PLO. But uh, when it comes to Israel, you're saying military action would have negative uh, consequences. On the Israeli side, mm. uh, can you imagine a scenario where they would, uh, like militarily, like if they are not winning uh, with Hamas, for example, if they mm. are failing with Hamas, can you imagine a scenario where, where where they would succeed militarily in Lebanon? This is where politics comes in, right? So, and again, I'm I'm not a, a military analyst, but um, of course we know that countries don't always go to war for good reasons or for for like cogent reasons. Um, politics is at play. And as I mentioned, it, 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 it seems to me that in Israel, their leadership is desperately in search of a political victory, you know, and, and they don't seem to be getting that victory in, in, in Gaza as things stand. I mean, they, they promised the Israeli people like the elimination of the threat from Hamas, like the elimination of Hamas, like how do you kill an idea? And, you know, all it would take is a, is a Hamas operative or, you know, a group representing Hamas to emerge in Gaza and say the resistance continues, and and that would be um, and and that could be claimed as a victory by Hamas. You know, just just pure survival. I don't think, and I, I certainly hope that we're not going to see any level of conflict which would put Hezbollah in a similar situation. But it's an asymmetrical battle. This has always been the problem: is that Israel has promised to change the situation of security at the border and remove the threat of Hezbollah. And that's an incredibly, incredibly high um, bar to, to clear. And and for that reason, perhaps, and this is something that, that I've been speaking about with my colleagues recently, is what what is worrying is what if Israel could only achieve something like, let's say, a half victory in Gaza? Would it try to complement that with a half victory against Hezbollah? What do you think about that? What is the half victory in Gaza now? A half victory, my point from the Israeli perspective might be eliminating a certain number of leaders. Like, I don't know what it is sending Uh, somebody to exile. And that's who they they take it out. Sure, but you know, my point is like. I'm I'm saying what, like, as as of now, Mm. is there even, can they even make that uh, argument, that claim that there's a half uh, victory, you think? No, 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 I'm not saying that yeah. they can. Oh, no, absolutely. I'm not saying no, that, no, no. but can you imagine? Not right now. And for me, the objective is so ambitious and so um, it sets such a high bar for itself that I actually, no, I, I, I can't personally imagine how that could be achieved. Yeah. Maybe, using the, maybe using the word half was wrong. A partial, what could be claimed as a partial victory, <laughs> and then trying to supplement that with a partial victory. The idea being, okay, we... Like, Israel might say something like it failed to eliminate Hamas as a complete threat and it failed to eliminate Hezbollah as a threat, but it reduced both of those groups' capacity to inflict harm or something like that. My point is this, the important, like we can argue about the details, but the point is that, yeah, I do think that 
uh, if Israel's not achieving its objectives in Gaza, it doesn't necessarily mean that Israel will say it's time to move towards diplomacy. It is possible that Israel will seek uh, some kind of military victory at the northern border, which which is incredibly concerning. How would they solve this uh, northern uh, northern concern of uh, their own people? You think? How would they solve it? Yeah, yeah, the northern concern, Hezbollah, the continuous Hezbollah threat on the north. What and, would they? But you you made a great point before, right? And that is like this idea of pushing back Hezbollah from the border. It, it's hard to imagine how that works in practice because what about Hezbollah fighters who are You know, Hezbollah fighters who are residents of villages along the border. What do they like? Do these guys just never live in their home again? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, and how how are these people identified? And then, what would they have to get for them to be to solve that concern? Can you imagine something? Uh, in, could, like a, a victory, quote unquote. You know. Sure. I mean, there could be some kind of partial implementation of 1701. There could be other. Um, which which what would increase Lebanese army presence? Yeah, sure. Something like that. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, yeah. Why not? I mean, if if having uh, Lebanese army increased Lebanese army presence, I personally can't imagine why Hezbollah would have a problem with that. Yeah. What, Given, so why would Hezbollah agree to that? I think Hezbollah will want something in return. Yeah. Well, uh, that's what I'm saying. What would Hezbollah have to get? In your opinion, you're a political analyst. I one of my expertise is politics. We're heading into extreme levels of speculation here, but yeah. I'll I'll forgive you because it's uh, my first time doing this podcast. Um, <laughs> no, I. Um, what about reduced flyovers? What about concessions on the land border? Yes, stuff like that. Maybe yeah. you know what I mean. Is in like okay, I think withdrawal from occupied areas as well. What's potentially? Yeah. I mean, look, it's obviously a whole other can of worms that would be opened if. With the the land border, for example, so you've got Amos Hochstein, you know, coming and trying to kickstart these negotiations to get the parties away from the logic of warfare towards the logic of uh, diplomacy negotiation. Seven of those thirteen points are like it's a, a tree here, or like a bush there, yeah. or a stone there. Like it's they can be easily resolved, but others are, are more complicated, and one of them is Gaza. Yeah, Gaza. Like 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 there's there's clearly. Um, I think a few hundred people who are Israeli citizens but are living on the Lebanese side of the blue line. Yeah. Do you know what? Like, just pragmatically and as speaking, as I understand they don't want to be uh, in Lebanon. They want to be in Israel. No, exactly. So the point is that there's going to be resettlement involved there. That's just one example of how it's not to say that the, the land border situation can be resolved, but anyone who thinks that the land border can be uh, demarcated. In like the next few weeks, and that will avert a war. Is living in a dreamland. I mean, it took ten years to demarcate the maritime border, and that was just dividing, you know, sea But and money. But there are channels now. Like that's a uh, positive. Pretend, yeah, because sure. that's like the maritime border succeeded. Yeah, but now you're dividing people's houses. Yeah, yeah. Like the only, the only houses better, yeah. being divided by the maritime border, yeah, yeah. like houses of fish. And, know, let's, like, and let's be clear, like Hezbollah and their statements refer to uh, Mount Tirel, uh, like Khashuba and Wazir al-Shabab. Mm. As uh, Lebanese territories, technically, they are uh, disputed. Like where we don't know if they are Syrian or Lebanese. Technically, they are still disputed, so we don't know if they are going to be part of that. Well, with uh, with, Sh- with Shiba, definitely the Syrians need to be in the room. Yeah, like like definitely like like with Shiba farms. Yeah, we have to be and demarcate the land with uh, with Syria as well. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and the Mount Fashuba, Tiret uh, Fashuba, we call that. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm not trying to be. Uh, cynical for once in my life I'm not trying to be cynical um, I'm not trying to uh, 
like denigrate those efforts because again, I think the logic of negotiating is great if it can buy time. And and I this is why I think I think time's really important. Is that what from from Israel's perspective, their their leaders are always saying that their residents need to feel safe again after this this great shock that happened on the seventh of October. But if there's a ceasefire, like let's say there's a permanent ceasefire at some point in the future, and Hezbollah honours its uh, pledge to to stop fighting, to just to, so the border falls quiet. Uh, as time goes by, like human nature would suggest that more and more residents of North Israel and residents of South Lebanon will return to their homes. I mean, already aren't we seeing more and more people going back to the south on the weekends, for example? Not just on the weekends. Uh, after the truth. Uh, David, yeah. after the first, like the truth in Gaza, which reflected on Lebanon, yeah. there were a lot of people who were shy to stay at their uh, families, like relatives' houses, yeah. because that uh, this war is taking a lot of time. So they prefer to stay in their uh, border houses, border areas' houses, yeah, yeah. than to uh, be at a relative's house, for example. Exactly. Or like to be at school. So even, like, uh, especially that now Lebanon is suffering from an economic crisis, yep. people sometimes prefer to stay at their home, and they have agricultural land as well. This is a fact. Yep. I can only speak about the Lebanese side because I know that. Sure. Yeah. But, I mean, and, like, but we can imagine, like, let's say that the guns fall silent. Yeah. Let's say that Israel doesn't follow through on its threats to expand its military campaign, and, and there's, a, there's some calm on the border. This is a good situation, right? The family in the hotel room, even if they're not an economic burden on their, their families like in Lebanon who are also going through an economic crisis, it gets pretty old living in one room and sharing a bathroom. So as time goes by and more and more people from their communities go back to the borderlands and send them uh, Instagram videos saying that um, the situation's fine, it's very calm and so on and so forth, that the more that kind of in a de facto way that sense of security will be restored. So to come back to my point, what's the best hope for a way out of this is permanent ceasefire in Gaza. I mean, we all want that uh, for reasons that are not even directly related to the border, but like that's just one of the many reasons that, that this should happen. Um, then if that happens and then if the parties take stock and there's stability at the border, I think that it is possible to return more or less to what there was before, even if Israelis lead, Israel leaders right now are saying that doing something like that, returning to the status quo before, is not possible. I think it becomes possible over time. By the way, Nasrallah had a speech on a Tuesday, not his last speech, but the one before, saying that diplomats have offered nothing, like not uh, withdrawal from occupied territories and mm. not uh, not uh, stopping the air uh, violations. Mm. I tend to believe Nasrallah when he says this, especially if you consider how mad Western countries are behaving with the Palestinian uh, uh, issue now, like when it mm. comes to the ceasefire. I tend to believe what Nasrallah is saying. Like I, I, mean, I don't rule it out. Sure. I, as I understand it, there has been, in that French proposal, I might, I might be misremembering this, but the one that sort of became public a couple of weeks ago. I thought there was something about reducing the number of flyovers and and so, like there there was some there was yeah. meant to be some uh, some element of a concession by by Israel. But in general, sure, I think that it, it does seem as though the Western led mediation efforts are geared towards trying to stop Israel from expanding the war in a really serious way. And I think in part because Western diplomats have calculated that Hezbollah has established this clear pattern of 
preventing or trying to prevent a massive escalation, but not negotiating over this until there's a ceasefire in Gaza. Last question, and then sure. you can add any point you want. Uh, I think I've spoken enough, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a question. Now. Come on. Here's <laughs> me, by the way, yes. Um, the uh, solution in Palestine. Let's say there was a two-state solution in Palestine. Mm. It would not just affect the northern concern, for example. I would assume that it would affect the whole stability in, in between South Lebanon and, uh, and Palestine, no? It would create stability, I mean. In what sense? Like, for example, we talk about how Israel tries to eliminate Hamas to ease its, uh, its danger, to like uh, relieve uh, their people from the Hamas uh, uh, risk, you know? Of but, what, but is your argument that if there was a two-state solution... If they withdraw from occupied, occupied territories within Gaza and... Uh, but this sounds like what you're suggesting is that that would remove the kind of... Um, the rationale for the resistance, right? Like, that's basically the argument. I'm not saying this. I'm, I'm saying it would create at least stability in, in these regions without getting into Hezbollah's arms and resistance. I think, oh, for sure, and that's a separate question. Yeah. Look, I think... Oh, you mean Hamas and Hezbollah? No, yeah, no, no, but, but I think, I think, you've, I think you've, you make a good point. Of course, like a, a proper two-state solution, which involves uh, a, an agreement and a settlement that's acceptable to the Palestinian people is clearly would be um, some of the best news. In fact, probably the best news the region's received in, in decades. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure, I'm signing up. One, can, can, only hope, One yeah. can only hope. Anyway, do you want to add anything before we... Just my thanks for having me on. I'm glad to finally uh, use Instagram for the first time, even though I did absolutely <laughs> nothing. <so. laughs> I did absolutely nothing as well. That's funny. 200 people logged in. Fantastic. Well, yeah, I don't know if it's good or bad, but like well, the, the it's linkedin. 200 is not bad. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, thank yeah. you. Thank you guys for watching us. And thanks to David and thanks for Ronnie for your questions as well. Great. Thanks for having us. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening and watching. And a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.